I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. is the music of Wendy James, who was my guest today on the program. Let me tell you a little bit about Wendy James. She was born in London and adopted soon after her birth. Now, Wendy James was always independent, and she talks about her family life in this interview, so I won't say too much. But let's just say this. She was ferociously independent, and uh, she left home at 16. She left London for Brighton. When she was in Brighton, she met herself a fella named Nick Christian Sayer. When word of this traveled back home to her parents in London, they said, well, it could have been worse. It could have been Leo Sayer. Now, back in Brighton, Wendy James and Nick Christian Sayer formed a band called Transvision Vamp. And as sometimes luck and fate work in a circular motion, they decided to move back to London. Transvision Vamp were signed by MCA in 1986, and they released a one-two sucker punch of singles. The first one was Tell That Girl to Shut Up, which was a cover by a band called Holly and the Italians, and the follow-up single was I Want Your Love, which reached the top ten in the UK. How did the band's debut album do? Not too shabby. Pop Art came out in 1988, and it hit number three on the UK charts. It was also a pretty big hit in Australia. As a matter of fact, it was the 25th best-selling album in Australia that year. Now, the band put a second record out in uh, 1989, and that was called Velveteen. How did that do? Well, word was out about Transvision Vamp, and Velveteen entered the charts at number one. It spawned two hit singles that were both top five smashes for the band in the UK. And at this point in their career, it was very fair to say that Transvision Vamp were international sensations. But as we know, it's much easier to remain international than it is to remain a sensation. By 1991, the album, which was the third album in Transvision Vamp's oeuvre, Little Magnets vs. The Bubble of Babel, which, by the way, is kind of an overlooked gem, well, it hit the shelves, but the shelves didn't really hit back. And at this point, the bloom was off the rose, and Transvision Vamp decided to split. After Transvision Vamp called it a day, James, who was feeling a little bit lost, did what anybody would do when they're feeling like they're at the crossroads in their career. She wrote to Elvis Costello, asking for guidance. And Elvis Costello, mensch that he is, wrote right back. Elvis Costello and his wife at the time, who was Cato Reardon of the Pogues, wrote an album for Wendy James, and it ended up being 1993's Now Ain't the Time for Your Tears. I have to tell you something. That album charted in the top 50 in the UK. 
but it deserved a much better fate. That album is an overlooked masterpiece of heartache and beauty, and in many ways, it found Wendy James, I think, at that point, at her very best. It is truly one of those records that you need to track down because it's something else. James kind of vanished for a bit after that, and at one point she signed to One Little Indian and started working on a record called Lies in Chinatown, which, depending on who you talk to, may or may not have been completed. In 2004, she joined a band called Racine. They put out two albums. The first one is called Number One, and the second one is called Racine Two. All right, they didn't spend a lot of time on their album titles, but they were a cool band. James decided to go solo again. In 2011, she released the brilliant record, I Came Here to Blow Minds, and in 2016 came the equally brilliant and arguably her best album ever, The Price of the Ticket. Now, there's a lot to like about Wendy James. She's smart, she's funny, she's dark, she's sensitive, she's eager, she's earnest, and she's sexy. But here's the thing I really like about Wendy James. Wendy James is one of those performers who, admittedly, is no longer a 22-year-old ingenue who's bursting onto the scene with uh, you know, all the fire and fury that youth will provide. But after all these years in the business, one thing Wendy James is doing is she's proving that with each record she makes, she's deepening as an artist. In other words, she keeps getting better and better. As a matter of fact, I would say that Wendy James is in more control of her artistic abilities now than she's ever been. And the results are incredibly exciting. The cool thing about this interview is that I caught Wendy James in the middle of the creative process. In other words, she's recording her new album as we speak. It's a sprawling double album, and it's called Queen High Straight. Now, Wendy talks about the recording of that album. She talks about her affiliation with Pledge Music. She talks about her past, her present, and her future, and she leaves no stone unturned. She's honest, she's funny, and I found her to be quite warm. I really like Wendy James a lot, and I love chatting with her. I hope you enjoy listening to it. This is me and Wendy James in conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I, um, I mean, to, to some small degree, um, between the price of the ticket and this one, I've been collecting up a, a certain amount of lyrical ideas. Musically, nothing was written, and um, so I just started at the beginning, which is you look at your bunch of uh, disparate lyric notations and see what comes out of you. Where are your... Basically. Your lyrical inspirations, where are they coming from these days? Oh, my goodness. Uh, um, well, I'd have to look at the track listing to tell you, literally. Um, hang on, let me pull up. I'll give you a few examples. Okay. Oh, well, I was reading about a gangster in um, Philadelphia called Melvin, somebody or other. And um, I, wrote, I wrote a song with, um, about wondering about the traje- trajectory of his life, why he became a gangster. So there's a song, track number five, called Little Melvin. Um, I was watching a documentary about, oh, what's that? What's that? Session keyboard player 
from the 60s who wore the top hat? Oh, um, not Leon you know. Russell. Is it Leon Russell? No. Yeah, Leon Russell. Okay. I was watching some home movies by Leon Russell uh, uh, that were filmed in the area that he lived in and worked in uh, by the bayou. And um, uh, so there's track 14 is uh, called Bliss Hotel. And that was based on the home movies of Leon Russell. Um, uh, Chicken Street, track number nine, that uh, I was living in Paris for a year. And um, one of the roads that I'd walk on each day to get to the metro was called Rue Poulet, which translates as Chicken Street. And uh, that was a very lively area of Paris, a very African area of Paris. And uh, that's based on my adventures in that quarter of Paris, Chicken Street. Um, Cancel it, I'll see him on Monday, is not particularly about anything apart from self-confidence and the usual, you know, uh, struggles one has in life. But uh, um, that turned out to be what I think is particularly strong song on the album. That's track number 18. I'll be here when the morning comes. I just wanted to write, which is track number 17. I just wanted to write something very beautiful and simple. And that also has come out as one of the best songs possible. I mean, I don't, this is how I feel having written them. By the time they've gone through the process in the recording studio and the musicians have added in their various uh, skills and inspirations, who knows which one will be my particular favourite songs. But out of the gate, I'm just staring down at Perilous Beauty, track number two. Uh, it's kind of sexy. That's a sexy song. Queen High Straight, which is the track number one and also the album title. Um, it's just, um, yeah, I, underlying all of this is just the general... I don't really do love songs particularly... But I do tend to um, tap into the uh, underdog spirit of survival, no matter what walk of life you're living. Um, and that always tends to attract me, just like it's good subject matter in movies, you know, watching someone uh, defeat the odds kind of thing. Uh, so that's track number one, and that's, that is worthy enough to be the whole album album title as well so who knows uh you know you can i i mean from leon russell through to chicken street <laughs> it's pretty it's you know it's it's whatever i'm living really so you're you're casting a pretty wide net for for lyrical inspiration which is really cool <clears throat> i mean it's just it's what i say it's you know it's just how, however i happen to be living and experiencing at the time of sitting down on my bed and writing you know, the, I mean, I'm old enough, as actually any 18-year-old would be as well, to draw on the feelings that you experience in life and the, and the real-time experiences you have and maybe a bit of wisdom you've collected along the way, an overview. So, uh, goodness, and, and, you know, one's general field of interest. If something catches me in a movie or in a piece of history, then um, that can usually lead my brain to start making up, you know, fictional, but very fictional as in literally they didn't happen, 
but uh, real as in they are based on a real subject matter and just see what happens like any good storyteller well is it easier for you to to write about stuff that you see uh that's more external and then in terms of like if you're writing about something that you're feeling is that a, a difficult a more difficult process to translate well i think everything comes from where you're feeling because your your feelings and what you've experienced in your inner life inform the opinions and judgments you make, right? Right. So even if you're uh, not that, even if you're literally writing about the queue in the supermarket, which I hasten to add, I have not. Um, <laughs> but even if you were, even if you were, your way of viewing that queue and your experience of that queue would be um, based on how you felt at that time, right? So it's all about feelings. I don't necessarily say I met a boy and he broke my heart because uh, um, I can't remember the last time that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I I can't think anyone would ever dare to break your heart. No, it would be uh, by accident, I'm sure. <laughs> no, speaking of breaking of hearts, why is there a moratorium on love songs? Is, uh, I just have never been that kind of writer, have I? I mean, if you look back at... I've never really... I think there's a lot of love. Lo I think there's a lot of that subject matter in my material, but it's never been from that cliché... And there's nothing wrong with cliché. My favourite girl groups, like the Shangri-Las and the Ronettes, they're always singing about the bad boy that done them wrong. But uh, uh, I just... um. It, it, uh, that narrative is uh, woven into the story that I tell rather than being the actual subject matter. Do you understand? I do. And in, term, in, in terms of your favorite writers, lyrically, in rock and roll, who, who has always been your biggest inspirations? Um, well, I think Bob Dylan writes the best stories. You know, I mean, he takes you to that place, doesn't he? He's like he—he's—that's why he became the Nobel laureate. He—he um—he—he he takes a subject and he and he manages to put it into five minutes or three and a half minutes, and completely captures the essence of a you know a big topic or a love affair or a complaint or or just merely an observation about the way a, a society is behaving or politics and history, and he takes takes you to that place in a beguiling story. It's, he's not preaching at you, and he, it's not a sermon, and he's not supposing that his opinion is, is any more valid than anyone else's. But he uh, he manages to, like a good scriptwriter for a movie, you have to set the scene and make it relatable. And I think Bob Dylan does that really effectively, and then I also really like Mick Jagger's lyrics because uh, they're serious on one hand, and on the other hand, they're absurdly, you know, tomato, ketchup, mayonnaise, green lizard, pulled out the air because a word rhymed. So uh, I like that too. I think Mick Jagger is incredibly underrated as a lyricist. Yeah, I, I mean, I've... He also has the knack, if you listen to Exile on Main Street, you may not literally understand, or not the one needs to understand, you may not literally get the references, but again, he manages to take you to that place. 
and I think that's what it's about because not a, none of us lead the same life, but there are experiences that are universal. So if you put enough colourful description into a story, even if it's about growing up on the island of Barbuda, which not many of us have done, uh, if it was described well enough, it would be relatable to growing up in Birmingham, Alabama. You know, it's, it's how you tell the story. I find that also with someone like Bob Dylan, when I was 17, I thought, oh, this guy's a genius. I totally get this. And then 30 yeah. years later, I still feel that way, but I get the songs in a, on a much deeper level than I did when I was 17. Have you found that there's kind of a deepening of his material as you get older? Um, I, I don't know if I can answer that. I, I, I mean, I've kind of taken his lyrics for granted since I was 17 as well. And by that, I mean, I just, I, from the, from the get go, like millions of other people, I recognized him as the speaker of truth. Right. <laughs> and there's a, there's something about um, the, for me, there's something about the tone of his voice and the musicians he chooses to put around him at different stages in his life of songwriting that just completely calm, you know, that just when you put on a Bob Dylan record, you're just in a very, very calm and good and complete place. And uh, that's not just his lyrical uh, choices, but it's a. Uh, I mean, he just, he just, he's just, uh, he's just the best, isn't he? He really is. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, he is. How do you feel about his more recent work? Do you still feel the same way about the new material? I haven't paid as much interest, but I haven't to the Stones either. You know, I'm sure I'm, al I'm along with, um, you know, yes. No, I haven't paid as much notice to his later material. I, I haven't particularly stopped to look at the videos that have Scarlett Johansson in them, or was it her that was in one? I can't remember. I think it was, but I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, it sounds cruel, and I'm sure a lot of, lot of my old fans would say this, that they're maybe stuck with me in a period that appealed to them, and they haven't necessarily delved into my later work. It's a real cruel thing, but, you know, I've stuck... Actually, hanging... With the Stones, I really dug them through the 80s as well. I mean, I, I like their um, their more funky 80s music too. But uh, typically, I'd go back to 68 to 72, wouldn't you? Oh, I mean, yeah. that's the golden... Yeah. Uh, and for Bob Dylan, I suppose it... Well, I really like his gospel stuff as well. No, it's just... Yeah, I haven't really paid much attention to him in the last 10 years, let's say. It... It's not. It's not uh, resonating with me as as the earlier material did. You know, I I wanted to ask you about what you just said. Is that Is it, fair? No, I think it's totally fair. I I'm with you on that. I'm I'm in the same boat. I haven't really listened to anything he's done since maybe 1983. Maybe since Empire Burlesque was my last one that I went. Oh, that was a great record. Um, I'm sure that's really unfair. I listened to his radio. His what was really informative, and I know that was. That was also put together by his manager, Jeff Rosen. But uh, I really enjoyed uh, his, his encyclopedic knowledge for his radio shows. And I love, you know, I'm, as you can, from briefly talking to me, I'm a really big fan of a good storyteller, a good yarn. 
And um, I love the little anecdotes that he offered up on that radio show as well. And, and again, you know, it's an America that's gone and did it even exist in the first place? You know, one always tends to look back at history uh, differently to when it's actually happening. And, um, you know, the, the kind of, and as an English person as well, that rather fell in love with Americana, you know, the idea of diners and, you know, cruising the drag late at night or being Woody Guthrie out in the fields. All of this stuff is very, very romantic in the rearview mirror. But at the time, you know, that uh, I can't, I doubt, I doubt that, you know, black people getting beaten up and having dogs set on them, um, uh, migrant workers in the fields. I'm sure they didn't think they were living a poetic existence. It's only... Um, but a good storyteller enables you to go to that place and be empathetic with the story without, and, and get to know, you know, just, yeah, take you to the place. That's what I enjoy. So what was the question? <laughs> well, I think, you know, I, I don't even remember, but I, but I do know this, that there's no greater myth maker than Bob Dylan. I mean, he even thinks that he didn't exist. He, he tried to insist on that in his, in his biography, that there really was no yeah. Bob Dylan, you know. Yeah, and that's wonderful, right? I mean, that's that's like a, and that you know, it is. It's like a a traveling carny, right? He talks about the carnival coming to town, the the state fair, and I think in the days before um, big media, you know, you had to tell stories. You had to tell stories to not only pass your own history down, but um, as a form of entertainment. And a good storyteller is a great thing. You know, people sit at, whether it's a Socrates or, I don't know, uh, um, you, you know, Ringling and Brothers, it's when you can create a world that people can step into. How aware are you when you are creating? How aware are you of that sort of romantic legacy of myth-making, of storytelling in your own work? About my about my life or about my music? What? Um, in your in when you're creating, yeah, in your music, are you are you aware of that? Are, do you do you keep that in mind, or do you not even think about that? I don't think I. No, I mean, I mean, my just from me explaining to you a few uh, examples of the new track listing, my my thought process, whatever captures me on that day, there has never been a plan. I suppose, uh, and it would take someone other than myself probably to look back at the whole body of work by the time I'm, you know, nearly dead and see what uh, what I've uh, come up with. Maybe then there's a train of uh, consistency, you know, themes that I continuously go back to. But at the time, it's whatever... Because I'm a music fan, right? So one day I could be listening to Donna Summer... The next day I could be listening to um, Leon Russell. And uh, there is no direct link between those two. It's whatever captures your feeling at that time. But there are thematic through lines through your work. Um, do you ever ask yourself, like, wow, here I am again exploring this, this theme? Um, do you ever try to unpack it and try to figure out why it is that you're attracted to that theme or to that iconography? Well, I, I do like the underdog, and I suppose I must view myself as one. 
and whether I am or not, my early experiences of uh, my personal uh, experiences as a child and a strange um, family, you know, uh, not a typical um, loving family unit. Um, I I suppose I had to, from an early stage, realise that there was only one person that was going to primarily fight for me, and that would have to be myself. So I suppose that's why I'm drawn to the underdog. But also underdogs tend to make better heroes as well, don't they? For, for big myth-making stories, whether it's, you know, downhill downhill skiers that, you know, didn't have a, come from a rich family or, you know, just any story where the underdog, you know, you know that's what we all love at the movies. You love it when the when the outsider gets gets to win the girl, you know. Um, and I, I suppose, that, yeah, I'm drawn to the, a bit more of the grittier side of life and how you navigate the obstacles. I but, like, you know, the underdog to me is always appealing because no one's expecting anything from them. So when they deliver the goods, it really comes with a, with a punch. Right. And an underdog will have more. I mean, it, I can only, in my, of course, if you grow up in a loving household that has plenty of money and you get a good education and you're good looking and. Of course, that life is going to come with travails, too. There is no such thing as an easy life. But, uh, you know, having to work your way through a society that doesn't give you as many breaks as perhaps it gives other people, that that's an interesting story, isn't it? That shows that someone is... Some, there's, a, there's a core of uh, self-belief inside of them that hasn't been beaten out of them or extinguished and um and there's a willingness to keep going despite despite it sometimes seem like insurmountable obst uh, obstacles and that uh, that's a story that we can all re all relate to because everyone has obstacles in their lives even the rich guy and the perfect you know perfect family unit that I described earlier. I don't know that life, and I, and I, but I do know people that, you know, are wealthy and have had what, what would be deemed as privileged lifestyles, and they also have just as many emotional and uh, uh, mental uh, upsets with the things life hurled at them as anyone that's poor. But um, yeah, there are more obstacles if you're poor and you don't get to go to a good school or you're not in a good area, and you have to. But before you can even begin in the big city, and once you get to the big city, you have to begin at the bottom. Um, before you can even get to the big city, you have to find your way out of where you are, and somehow make it to the big city, and it's a long fucking course. To find to maybe end up where you are achieving what you knew in your heart you were capable of doing. And that's an interesting journey, whatever the journey is. Well, 
that being said, have you always been ferociously independent? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, yes, yes. No doubt, because uh, I come from a background where I had to be. So, like I said, I mean, there is a... There's pain in me because I wasn't uh, nurtured particularly well. There's that pain that will... It doesn't matter how how, how uh, intellectually you resolve these issues in your mind, the, feet, the damage that's done to you as a child stays with you forever. And it, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to affect doesn't necessarily have to derail you later in life, but the pain doesn't go away. And also the independent streak that a child learns pretty quickly um, that you're going to have to look out for yourself. Um, that doesn't go away either. And that, you know, and sometimes that's an adverse thing because there are times when you need to trust people and let them in and uh, relax a bit, you know, don't always be pushing. And, um... Sometimes you have to make sure that uh, your childhood uh, experiences don't just keep on repeating the same mistakes once you're an adult. You have to learn through your pain. I mean, get past that pain. I, that, get past is such an overused term now, but you you have to... Otherwise, you're doomed just to just be a fuck-up. So you have, you have to... But, um, so it's... It's a double-edged sword. In one way, it's a, it's a great gift to to know from an early age that you have to believe in yourself, you have to be independent, and you have to, you know, yeah, be a strong and focused person. But on the other hand, the reason that stuff got formed in the first place is because you were protecting yourself from something that was hurtful. So it's a... But then that makes you a good songwriter or an empathetic person, right? Because you can uh, you can uh, tran transmit the strength that other people might take from take away from a gig or a record. You can transmit the strength that they also need to have within themselves, and you can also transmit the pain uh, in a way that uh, alleviates someone else's pain. So it is what it is. But, don't know how to explain it. No, I'm I'm totally following you. And your the lack of nurturing did that make you a more nurturing person in your in your own life? That I I think so. Yes, because there's something in me that there's a little bit of my heart that has remained completely pure and childlike, and didn't didn't ever really grow up. You know, I've had to in in some ways I've my own parent, so. I think I was, I think I didn't, you know, I didn't punish myself too much. And if other people were telling me I wasn't good enough, I always said to myself that I was. And so uh, I think I'm very, when I meet my friends' children or, or other adults in my life, I think I'm quite a good friend that uh, is capable of, huge amounts of emotional generosity and patience because uh, I had to give that to myself as well. So it is there. You have this incredible reservoir of of feeling and nurturing that hadn't been tapped into. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, uh, I think, uh, I, I don't know. I, I Yes, I, there's a bit of my heart that has never, never been, I haven't, my little my little soul within myself, and I don't like that word either. <laughs> but um, 
uh, is untampered. You know, a lot of human beings get bent out of shape as they go through these knocks that we all take. But um, I think I managed... I think I managed to stay quite innocent. Do you think that the success that you had when you were younger, that you were ready for that? Well, I don't know any other life, so... It happened at the right time, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, of course, I wasn't as developed at the age of 18 as I am now. But at the time, you don't know that. At the time, you think you know everything. And at, and for your and as an 18-year-old, you do know everything you can possibly know for that stage. And that's the whole point of life, isn't it? As you keep getting bigger and fuller uh, with your experiences. Uh, so, no, it didn't... One of the wonderful benefits of being uh, financially and uh, internationally uh, successful at an early age is you learn fast in a grown-up world. You learn fast how to handle yourself, um, how to receive other people's demands upon you, and how to uh, grow, how to lay some boundaries, which are really important. Um, and how to stay focused if you've got, you know, you've got to, there's a certain amount of things you have to do in each day once you're a musician that's in demand. And you can't be, if you are ambitious and you want to fulfill the, the agreements you've made with people, you can't fuck around. You have to, uh, you have to do what you say you're going to do. And... I think all of that's really useful uh, life lessons. It's also a shame because, of course, every young musician gets taken advantage of by the, the business, quote-unquote. And, of course, I was, I was ripped off as much as anyone else is when, you know, when they're in their first band. And looking back at it, you wish, of course, you were armed with the tools to recognise the predators. But um, you're not, and so it happens to you. And then... If you're bright, it never happens to you again. <laughs> and uh, that, and there's the lesson. So it's all instructive, and none of it's regrettable. Is it hard to maintain friends in the music industry? Do you have friends you've had for 30 years, or is that a difficult thing to do? Well, musicians, yeah. Musicians are my brothers and sisters. I mean, I can walk into any room with a musician and a certain, you know... A, not hustlers, not people that are bullshit, not bullshit musicians that say they're doing a hundred things and that actually they're doing nothing. But real musicians who actually play and uh, love music and are, are just as ambitious for their own, with their own... Um, uh, um, my short answer to you is some of my... The best musicians, uh, the best friends in my life are musicians. Um, I can't say I'm particularly friends with the business people. I know some of them and I like them and I'm happy to see them when I see them or if we have meetings, but I don't hang out with them. Um, but musicians, yes. You know, I'm a creative person, so right. I relate better, more instinctively, with creative people. If they're an artist or a graphic designer or a movie maker or a scriptwriter, then these things will engage my curiosity more than somebody telling me about uh, accounting. On the other hand, I fucking need the accountant usually more than I need. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So, uh, you know, I, yeah, I'm a bit, I'm, I'm the typical artist where I'm rubbish at business and really good at, at the creative stuff. I'm with you, and I, I'm a writer, and for me, it, you know, it's easier to be around people who understand the struggle. It's easier to be around artistic people because the creative process and the struggle around that and the struggle to get your work out to the yeah. world um, is something that we can all relate to. That's right. And, yeah, I mean, it's and especially uh, with a musician... You don't even need words. You just need to hear them plug in and play, and you start grooving on what's coming out of them. And uh, it's a very rewarding. I mean, I just uh, it's hard. I, I really love being with my musicians and also with other musicians who I don't work with, but uh, we speak the same language. But uh, it's also interesting to listen to people who are in uh, the political world or in or history professors or even my accountant, you know, because his life is just as complex, but it's... But they are wired differently. As, you know, pe business people are wired differently to... I don't think they could possibly understand the lengths. Like, musicians or artists would rather go... You know... Take, they would take it to the end of the world just to make sure that their work doesn't get um, uh, uh, compromised, and that's a very, you know, and that's got nothing to do with money or success. It's just this inner thing that you have that you must make the work you hear inside of you, and that's a. But maybe it's the same for a business person who starts with nothing and then has a chain of supermarkets. That's or you know a guy that wants to become a millionaire from you know tuppence. Uh, maybe that's the same drive. But I think we're all. I think artists, creative types, quote unquote, are wired slightly differently to um, business people. I think that business people. I just don't think they understand the struggle of creation. I think that you know, no. right? They get the finished product. I think they think it. Yeah, they don't. They certainly don't understand. That's why I always think I should make a bloody documentary on the recording, uh, because there's just so much intense labour that goes into it. But of course, for the most part, one only sees the end product, which is a glistening, shining new album with lovely artwork, and and everyone's ready to perform. And you don't see the hours of. I know for myself that I'm very, very close to the engineers I work with as well, because we know that we're poring over the mixing desk, checking millisecond differences between things. And, uh, and it's really deadly important work at the time. You know, like that one, that one second is going to either make everything gel together or everything uh, be slightly off. And this, the, the, that's, yes, I don't, no one really, all my fans say to me, oh, can you come and play this place? Can you come and play that place? And I love them for saying that, and I want to do it every single time. But for me to turn up and perform in your local town requires having the whole band, having them available, paying them, doing the hotels, doing the flights, getting the equipment, uh, setting up the stage. You know, it, there's just so much more into 
me turning up at 9pm and putting on a show. So, I mean, it's easier for Woody Guthrie. You can just maybe sling your guitar on your back. But when you're um, travelling with a band, there's a, there's a lot of moving pieces just to, just to perform each night. Yeah. You've seen the Rolling Stones. When you get to that level, then it's a, it's a fucking army. It's a big business. I mean, that truly is, with the Stones, it truly is a carnival. I mean, it, it's, you're right, it's huge. It's a, it's a production. It's an enormous production, and if you go backstage uh, at one of their shows, there's arrows pointing everywhere to the production office, the stagehand, the electrical guy, the, you, the electricians. You, you know, there's just so many. In order for Mick Jagger to walk out at night and sing Start Me Up, there's a hundred, two hundred people involved. It's phenomenal. You know what's remarkable to me, getting back to sort of the the critical response to art, is you know I, I overheard a conversation in a cafe today uh, where someone was talking about the new U two album, and a guy said, "What do you think?" and and the girl he was with said, "I don't like it. It sucks. I only listened to it once, and I hated it." And I thought that's years of that band's life. Right. I mean, yeah. I, you know, not that not that we're worried about you two making rent, but I mean, the idea that you can dismiss something that people put three, four, five years of their life into—that's um, yeah. to me is just so hard to hear. Yeah, and really true. I mean, you get, you know, what it took me a year and two months to write these songs. It's going to take me uh, the best part of two thousand. 2018 to record it and mix it and have it delivered not because that's how long we're going to spend in the studio but that's how long it takes everyone's schedules to line up and for the what you know for all the different processes until it ends up in so that's two, two years making a piece of work right well two if you're working in a regular job uh two years is a long time to and you're getting paid every day of the week for that stuff for your job and um, to spend two years on something as a an artistic uh, compulsion that you have to follow, uh, and then have have and then be told, oh, it's it's shit. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. What I mean. What? Yeah. It's it's very unjust. But you can't expect anything more than that because people have their lives to get on with. And some people, some music fans really, I know the people that follow me with love and um, loyalty over the years, they really do, they love my style of music and they sit down and they listen to it and each time they listen to it they get more and more out of it. But equally there are some people that go, well, Wendy James, oh, who gives a fuck? <laughs> and um, that's their opinion. And you can't do it, you know, you just have to put it out there. It doesn't really matter what they say, does it? You have to put it out there. That's right. I mean, you, listen, I've been in art museums where people have walked up to Monet's and gone, eh, <laughs> you know, they're not really, not, yeah. not impressed. Yeah, well, me too. I'm definitely, I've definitely walked through galleries and gone, I don't get it. Yep. And I'm sure, and um, I'm sure some, you know, my, uh, the, my, the man I spend my life with, he's a painter, and um, he would be able to tell me intellectually or even viscerally for himself why a painting is so incredible. And 
personally, it doesn't connect with me, and it looks like it's some colours, and it's okay, but so what? <laughs> so you, you can't expect, you know, there's somebody out there for everyone. For my music, there are people that will love it. For the paintings in a gallery of an abstract, uh, whatever, I, I don't know about painting, really. Um, you know, some people are going to think it's the most banana thing they've ever seen, and it speaks to the the essence of their being. And some people are just, you know, or even like your, you know, say lovely water lilies, great. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you know, I, it's all. But if you're the artist, if you're the person doing the work, or the writing, or the book, or the journalism, or the, uh, the yeah, you can't worry about the. I mean, you do from a like that's the unfair thing is we are in we're in a strange dichotomy where we are trying to meld a very pure process of art creativity with business because we've chosen to try and make our livelihood out of something that is intrinsically not conditioned well to business you know being a creative person so you look, you hope that it's successful because, well, it feels nice to be liked, but you can you can kind of grow through that as you get older. It matters less and less. Um, but you also have to make the bottom line right, otherwise you're on the, you really are in the gutter instead of just writing about it. That's right. And so, uh, and so, um, that's a difficult. Some, I mean, I've been lucky, and I'm. By no means a wealthy person, but I've been lucky enough to not be on the in the soup kitchen. But uh, it's a yeah, maybe maybe I can't. Maybe that literally is luck. I'm I'm sure I'm canny to a certain degree. You know, I haven't let myself really um, be exploited or ripped off. But uh, uh, it has to be luck. It has to be luck and determination, I suppose. But on the other hand, I can't be I can't be that clever because uh, some people end up making millions from the music business. And I'm sure at the point of Transvision Vamp, if I'd chosen a slightly different path and become very, very commercial and visible and segued as nowadays you can into TV and fashion lines and celebrity endorsements and all of this i'm sure I'd, i could have uh, made a bunch of money but i i'm personally not able to do that i can't make myself do that so i've, I've obviously chosen to live at a lower level of financial gain and a higher level of creative creative uh autonomy and you're richer so that's for the it i mean yeah i mean you're richer for it i mean i think that you are more satisfied yeah in, but right? if I, I mean, I, I'm looking at that new iMac Professional, the iMac Pro, 27-inch, and it's $5,000. The new one, you know, the lovely new shiny oh, yeah. Big Mac. Yeah. And and I'd really love to be able to walk into the shop and just buy it. 
and I can't. <laughs> and it's not fair. <laughs> well, I can't either. That's what. That's why we're talking at two in the morning in San Francisco. <laughs> I, the the one of the things that I love though that's happening to you is the fact that you and I are around the same age, and you seem more creatively alive than you've ever been. And, and to me, that's exciting. Yeah, that's true. I, at the, as an artist, I have uh, a million-fold improved with age. And my trajectory... Gosh, I'm finding hard to say that word. Trajectory uh, for, um, I think, my skill set of songwriting has improved enormously. I am no doubt... Critically, subjectively, objectively, I'm no doubt a better musician, songwriter, singer, lyricist than I ever, ever was in the days when I was, quote-unquote, more successful. I am by far much better now. Um, and, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I'm very... If I walk down the street, I'm a confident person in my own abilities. But... Yeah, I haven't managed to make a ton of money out of it. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I I can relate. Here's what we'll do: we'll get like a hundred of our friends to chip in, and we'll all buy an iMac together, um, because that's the <laughs> only way to do it. Um, but I, I'm excited by. I'll get one in the end, but I'll have to wait until they've been. It's the the third version, and then maybe look on the Mac website and get one that's reconditioned and. You know, I'll get one, but it won't be the shiny brand new one. That's right. It, I'll talk to you again in 2022, and you'll say, hey, guess what I just got? I got that, that iMac. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. but, but, Wendy, I am really excited about the idea that a lot of times when artists are our age, they sort of start to slow down. And it's really exciting to me that you seem to be speeding up, and I think that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. But I guess because I've freed myself of the 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 chains of expectation, you know, that that, that you that you follow a certain path. I I don't know what the I just know that the more work I've done, the better I've got, the more confident I've become and the more I want to do. And the more things that engage my mind and I've I've also grown in uh, stat, stature of respect with my fellow musicians, so um, good musicians enjoy working with me, and they get something out of it as much as I do. I, yeah, it's just, um, yeah, so I am very lucky. I'm alive, I'm healthy, and I'm, I'm making what I think is very good music. So all of that's really lucky. Well, you've, you've shaken off the shackles of expectation from yourself, and which is very freeing. But what about, you talked about this a while ago when we started talking about your fans are sort of like, you're kind of frozen in time to some people. Nothing you can do about that, right? That's just, just no. No, right. I, I, I mean, we're talking, I'm talking primarily about people that are constantly long for Transvision Vamp because it will remind them of that summer when they were a 17-year-old and everything, you know, they were young and hot and having loads of sex and everything was in front of them. That's why they want Transvision Vamp to reform, to capture their moment. Um, and they can, and but they're never going to be the kind, and I, you know, lo I love them for that, of course. I understand it. I wish I could go and see um, the Gimme Shelter tour, I, you know. But um, uh, they're never going to necessarily, well, I don't know, love, I would say 70% of Transvision Vamp fans 
have have moved on with me and and followed my progress not necessarily intensely but they dip in and dip out and uh, 40% of them have, are really passionate about what I do now 20 are like oh cool that's that's great and you know another percentage are stuck and forever will be stuck in the pop band that I did when I was 17 18 years old and it's all fine because on the counterbalance of that <clears throat> I've made different fans who in some cases in Europe I'm sure it'd be the same if I ever had success in America again didn't even know about Transvision Vamp right you know and then it becomes like oh my god she did this thing back in the 80s but they discover me for what I'm for my output now so it's all fine I get to meet them after the gigs or obviously with social media I watch their comments and um, on the whole, I don't, I don't get nasty comments. I get uh, really nice comments. Uh, and, and on some days, I'm sure you know this, on some days it's just one little thing saying, I really love your work, please keep going, that gets you over the hump of thinking, oh, fucking hell, what the hell am I going to do? And, uh, and um, it's all valuable. I try and give them as much time as I can when I'm in a place, you know, like a gig where we all meet. And good God, these guys dip their hand into their pocket and they spend a 10 or 15 or sometimes 50 pounds on, you know, a, pic a picture disc. And that means they're willing to actually, however they earn their money in whatever job they go to each day, they're prepared to spend some of their hard-earned money on the fruits of my labour, and that's that. That's really, you know, that's really important and special, and uh, an equation that has to remain. That, you know, if I want to buy a, something like the Mac or whatever, there's a lot of work that went into making that Mac computer, and I'm willing to pay my hard-earned money to own someone else's, you know, invention. And it, I think it's just, um, so I honor every single fan that uh, bothers to spend a tenner on the work that I've done because it means that they want to own it and enjoy it for a little time. And does it also make you think about packaging in a totally different way? Like it, you almost feel more responsible to really put a nice product out there. Well, I always, I always have. I can't say I was particularly involved with the transition vamp styling and marketing. Right. Because, like, I, I was so young, and that was done by, you know, uh, uh, teams of people at Universal Records. Um, but certainly in my later years... I mean, yeah, let me clarify. The ideas for transition vamp were very much from myself and Nick Sayer. But we were assigned to a major label who put everything at our disposal... And uh, whereas nowadays it's me and a graphic artist and I am a perfectionist in everything that um, is related to my work. And so, of course, I sit down and and once again informed by being a fan myself. So I, 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 I know the artwork that's turned me on in the past or how I felt when I used to pour over lyrical content or uh, uh, liner notes. Um this stuff, I, I mean, it's just as enjoyable for me as it is for the fan to uh, look back at a package and think, 
wow, that's really great. <laughs> you know, that's a, you know, it's worth it. It's worth putting the hours in. Well, here's me sounding businessy, but you know, your stuff, the branding that you've done is really consistent and really, really beautifully, beautifully crafted. Well, thank you. I really like it. Yeah, I think it's, I, I mean, you, it's an interesting little journey from uh, when I did the Racine One, I think that was only ever available digitally. Then Racine Two became digital and CD. Then I came here to blow minds. Uh, I added the vinyl in. Then on the last one, the price of the ticket, it was all three formats plus picture disc uh, and sing and some seven-inch singles as well. And this one, I'm going for double vinyl. So I'm I'm going. Yeah, it's becoming more and more. You know, you just set yourself goals, and I just and I learned something on the last album because I had. I can't remember how many songs I had in total, but it was too many to fit on one bit of vinyl. And that's why you get all the tracks on the CD and a shortened selection on the vinyl. Because I was skilled by Lenny Kay that uh, if you start going above more than five or six tracks on one side of uh, LP vinyl, the, the grooves start degrading. And so I wanted to write... Originally, I thought I'd do a, a kind of um, double album with some bonus tracks. And then I thought, fuck it, I'll do 20 songs, five for each side, all really high quality in, you know, in the grooves. And so now it really is a, a gatefold piece of vinyl that will end up coming out of this recording session. By the way, I'm noticing that you're very accessible to your fans, which is really nice. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, God, they're my lifeblood, aren't they? Yeah. Apart from, I mean, I, I would still be writing songs uh, and singing to myself in the bathroom mirror, probably. But, uh, you know, without the fans, I wouldn't be, I still wouldn't be, I wouldn't be here, would I? No, I wouldn't. I mean, they've made my life possible. And as much as I've enriched different bits of their lives, at different times in their lives, they've made my life possible. Wendy James leaving it on a powerful note. I like that sentiment there at the end. I liked it all. I like talking to Wendy James. She's cool. Hey, if you want to know more about her new album, all you have to do is go to thewendyjames.com, and every piece of information you need to know is there. How to reach her, how to buy things, how to see her play when she uh, comes to your town, how to pet sit for her when she's on the road. Uh, okay, you can't do that one. But all the other stuff, you can. Thewendyjames.com. If you want to subscribe to Bombshell Radio on iTunes, we'd love that. Do that. Also, it wouldn't hurt to uh, subscribe to Stereo Embers, the podcast. We'd really love that, too. Uh, and you know what? We love you. Thank you for being out there and listening to this show week to week. It means the world to us, and we're going to keep going. We're going to keep bringing you great interviews with great artists talking about their great careers or their careers that aren't going so great. They don't have to be going so great to be interesting. All right? They're just in a lot better mood if, uh, if they're going well. All right, I'm Alex Green. You want to drop me a line? Do it. Editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com or on Twitter 
at Ember's Editor. All right, that's the show. I will be back next week. Thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast.